We're uh, finishing um, our book, our study in the book of Hebrews. We have uh, in the middle of chapter 12. <clears throat> I'd like to pick up with um, basically verse 6 of chapter 12 where we left off. We just got started uh, on this last week. And I thought, I was thinking about it after I left last week and then this morning as I was getting ready for the class. I thought I'd take just a little bit of a bunny trail on this because I think it's an important issue that um, quite frankly is not discussed a lot in the church. So I, I'd like to do that if that would be all right with you. First of all, just uh, I hope you can all see this and read this, but just a word or two about the term. Uh, if, you're, if you haven't been here for a while, just to orient you. We're in um, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, not, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son he receives. That's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It is for discipline that you are to endure. I'll, I'll pick up on the rest of that in just a minute. But I thought I would just take a little bit of uh, time to talk about the word the term that we're translating as discipline. Now, as you know, um, the original language of the New Testament was Greek. So the word that is used there is paideia. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but if you are in any way familiar with education, you certainly, uh, the Greek, another Greek derivative of this is pedagogē. You certainly have heard of pedagogy. Um, is that a new term, to, uh, totally new, or some of you it isn't? But that's, that's a term that is associated with education, with teaching, with training uh, of teachers and that kind of thing. So it's not, it's not a term. When, when you hear the word discipline as an English word, almost always we think immediately of punishment. That is not how you should think about it with this term. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a degree of punishment or, or, or a punitive nature to us. But its main focus is to train, to correct, to equip for life. I mean, that's really how it is used in the New Testament. So, it, I mean, it does have a punitive or corrective uh, uh, degree to it or measure to it. But if, if you only think of, well, God disciplines me to punish me. You have, you have distorted the understanding of that word. That is not, that is not the singular emphasis of this. God is not out to punish us. Now, I hope you understand this next sentence. Sometimes he hurts us or allows us to be hurt so that we will be trained and corrected and equipped for something greater that he has for us. Because sometimes for us to, uh, now I'm going to just use broad stroke examples here without getting specific, unless you really want me to, but sometimes for us to really let go of sinful habits or sinful patterns of our life, he has to hurt us so that we let go of it. Do you understand what I mean when I say it that way? So that is a part of this. But God's greater goal is not just to punish us. He's not some ogre up in heaven how can I make Jim Eckman's life miserable today? That is not how God looks at this. I'm his child. I belong to him. And so, I mean, in my life, I know without question, when I came to know him in 1972, in those years that followed, 
God did a lot of this, and he hurt me a lot so that I would let go of a lot of things. And that's, that was good for me. I understood it. And so it's important that you kind of get this whole picture of what God is doing, I, what I really mean, what the author is doing here when he talks about God disciplining us. So he says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, treat that seriously. It's a serious part of your sanctification. It's a serious dimension of your growth and dependence on the Lord. It's not something that you you just dismiss and 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 and, and not understand what God's trying to do. And so that's what he's trying to say. I want you to understand why this is important. First of all, in verse 6, it proves something to you. It proves he loves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It proves he loves me. As I said earlier in my own life in, in those years after I came to know him, that was really an important thing for the man that was mentoring me. He kept saying that to me. God loves you. And God wants you to shed all of these habits and practices to equip you for things he has for you later on. And my goodness, I look back on that. I really understand that. Now, I didn't then necessarily. And so that's what he's saying. It proves that he loves us. And for you and me, uh, again, I'm not quite sure I I know all of you, uh, whether you have children or not, but many of you, if not most of you, maybe all of you, but many of you have children, and you know that you discipline your children. You don't discipline your next-door neighbor's kids or the kids across the street. You discipline your kids when they're growing up. Why do you do that? Because you love them. And you are trying to, I mean, that's why it isn't just, it isn't just to punish your kids. It's to train them and correct them and equip them for life. And so they get off the track. They um, violate a, commu- a, a standard of the home. Uh, they do something clearly and uh, d- very defiantly uh, that you didn't want them to do. You've got to discipline them. Because a parent does not discipline his or her children is not a good parent. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And I think one of the and sociologists who don't give a hoot about the Lord Jesus, sociologists are starting to observe there's a real problem in our country right now. And one of the major problems in our country right now is we have parents who don't care about disciplining their children, who don't take the responsibility of having children and I mean, they'll you know they'll have sex and, and then have kids, but I mean they don't take the responsibility of having children, because sex is something that is really, from God's perspective, a means to an end. One of those ends is procreation and having children. It is enjoyable. God created it; it's a beautiful thing. But it has enormous responsibilities if a child comes. And so sociologists are saying, how do we get back to that? How, how do we help parents? Well. <laughs> The Bible has been talking about this for close to 5,000 years. It's been talking about the family and about the, it's the very first thing God created in Genesis chapter 2. It's, it's all through the Old Testament. We have enormous examples of very negative, terrible examples of people. Don't be like that person. And then we have the corrective teaching of, of the New Testament. So God is interested in this. And what the author is doing is saying, As you discipline your children, God disciplines you. 
And it shows you that he loves you. And then secondly, in verse 7, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father did not discipline? It proves that you're his child. It not only proves he loves us, it proves that we're his children. We're in his family. I know I've mentioned this for J.I. Packer in his magnificent book, Knowing God, in his chapter on God as Father. The very first sentence of that chapter is, the highest privilege of the believer is to call God Father. I mean, that's true. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing invitation for us. We come to know Jesus Christ. We understand what he's done for us at the cross and resurrection and so on. Now we understand we're in his family. And that means I can call God my heavenly father, which means he's a perfect father. He's not a human father who can make mistakes, and he's a perfect father. My wife, uh, her father left uh, her mother when Peggy was in sixth grade for another woman, and he never saw his three daughters again. He completely, completely cut all ties with his three girls, which I can't, you know, I just, I can't understand that. I don't know how you could possibly do that, but he did it. And so Peggy grew up without a dad, and her image of a father, her image of a dad was not a good one. And when she came to know Christ, she and I came to know the Lord at the same time. When she came to know Christ, the most important thing for her, I shouldn't put it this, one of the most important things for her was to begin to understand that God is her perfect father. Amen. He cares for her. He'll never leave her. He'll never forsake her. He'll never string her along and then cut all ties with her. That's not what God the Father's like. And so the author is saying, when he trains and equips and corrects us, right, it's because we're his children. He's a good dad. And then we'll get to this in a moment. He has a purpose, and that purpose we'll see in, in coming up in verse uh, 10. Well, maybe I'll go to that right now. For they, this human parent disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines for our good that we may share his holiness. That it will yield, verse 11, that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And trained is pedagogue. So it's, it's, you, get that, you get that real sense of what discipline means. So it proves we're his children. It proves he loves us and has a purpose to it. That we will be holy as he's holy. That we will be bearing the fruit of righteousness. And so it's a, it's a wonderful reminder of, and you know, I'll work in things that we've talked about many, many times in the class. It's a wonderful reminder of one of the elements of sanctification. The process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That process involves a loving, disciplinary hand of our Heavenly Father. Okay, now, I'm not done yet, but any questions? We defined it. We've talked about the three major ideas associated with this. It proves he loves us, proves we're his child, and he has a goal for us. Dan. I think, uh, what would be the difference between a trial and discipline, and how we, how can we understand which is one? Because trials... I think they, they overlap very, very much. I mean, they're, they're almost the same element, but not exactly. Because um, remember, I mean, I'm not sure I want to kind of dice the difference between the two. 
discipline is often to train, to correct, when there's something that the Lord wants us to deal with. That's discipline. Now, a trial may be a way in which he is going to help us to deal with that. Or, I mean, that's why they're not exactly... Uh, Paul talks about this, James talks about this, and James 1, Paul talks about it in Romans 5, that trials are also how God develops our character. So, I mean, they're not quite the same. There's a lot of overlap there, but they're not quite the same. I probably didn't help much there. Does that sort of can, get can to you? Can you say that sometimes trials has to do more with our faith and discipline more with our character? Would that be the first thing? I'm not sure I want to quite put it that way because Paul and James both connect trials with the development of our character. They both talk about it that way. And a, and a wonderful example of character traits would be like the fruit of the Spirit. So how, how does God develop patience in our life? Give us a book to read, a pamphlet to read? Or does he put us through situations which force us to learn to be patient? That's a trial. I think, and that's why they're so... <laughs> They're so similar, or they, like Venn diagrams, they overlap a lot. But I think there are some distinctive differences. I would say that a discipline of the Lord is, is primarily corrective. It's primarily corrective and training. Whereas, a, that's discipline. Whereas a trial, it, a trial is, is, is a circumstance in our lives that God either causes or permits for us to develop the kind of character he has. Because remember, the goal God ha- the goal the Heavenly Father has in your life is for you to become like his son. And um, therefore, discipline and trials are going to be part of the major ways in which God does that. But, uh, were there any other? Uh, Ron? Um, I'm connecting a couple of things here, and I, I'm not sure about the connection. It, it sounds as if both could be related to sanctification. Both are related, not could be, they okay. are related to sanctification. Um, and then the other one is I get the impression that trials deal more with when we are accomplishing God's ends as opposed to just being in training. So it's more of a performance oriented situation. I don't like that word performance, but I think I understand what you mean. I, I think I understand what you mean. It's that's why uh, what Daniel was saying is is so helpful in his question. Trials are primary, and, and I I'm not sure I want to say this absolutely, but trials primarily involve character formation. That that is that is probably the major thing because that's how Paul talks about in Romans five. He just talks about how character, and he gives a whole bunch of words, and he just puts it on top, one on top of another one for us to really understand. And that's what James means in, in James 1 2. Count it all joy, and you count us very trials. Count it all joy? What? Because you know what God's doing there. Whereas discipline is, discipline has a little more of a corrective element to it. There are some things in your life that you need to deal with. There's some things in your life, and it's, it's the patterns 
It's the patterns, I like to put it, there's patterns and habits of sin. Because the goal, what's the goal? He tells us in verse 11, 10 and 11, it's God's holiness. It's the fruit of righteousness. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's corrective and training uh, to deal with those things that are not holy and are not righteous in our lives. That's where I would start to make, make just a little bit of a distinction between the two. Perhaps define what I, why I the term performance. Uh, you know, I, you tend to think of, you know, like uh, performance evaluation in business. That's not really what I meant. I was thinking of God puts us here for a reason. So we are, my perception is we're, we're here to do his work. Mm-hmm. So do either one of these involve a situation where we are doing his work? Mm-hmm. Is that something we should be doing all the time anyway? Or? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, we're, we're always representing the Lord in every aspect and every facet of our lives. And to represent him in every facet of our lives, the implication that's there is that people are watching. We become a testimony. We are the ambassador of the Lord. We represent him in every way. And so that is part of the reason why he leaves us here. <laughs> because, I mean, if, the, if, if he would uh, you know, bring us to salvation, justify us and take us to heaven, who would be left to represent him? Who would be the salt and light, the, the word Jesus used? And there wouldn't be anybody. So, I mean, that's the, but it's that I still believe, um, and I, not everybody has agreed with me on that, and I, I guess I'll say it tentatively, but I still believe the greatest evidence for the truth of biblical Christianity is the changed life. Changed life. The transformed life. I mean, you know, I, without getting into details, the only reason I'm sitting here right now is because of what happened to me in 1972. That's the only reason. Because if you knew me in 1972, you would not believe what God, you could not believe all that God has done. But I I say that to his glory because he transformed me. I didn't do it because I didn't particularly want to do it at that moment. But he transformed me. It took a long time, but he transformed me. And that is the greatest evidence, I think, of genuine biblical Christianity, that what Jesus Christ says is true, is the change transformed life. And it's, it's, uh, it's still great. And you, you know, you see that. In, I mean, what explains Peter? What explains Peter? <laughs> Jesus and the transformation that comes from salvation of the Holy Spirit. What explains Paul? You know, you, you know, we've studied that. We did Acts. But Paul's headed one direction. He meets Jesus in Damascus Road. He turns around. He's headed the other direction, so to speak. What explains that? Jesus. What explains those early leaders of the church that were willing to go and die, willing to be martyred because they believed the resurrection. They believed it was true. They, I mean, they absolutely believed. They saw it. They saw the effects of it. It's absolutely true. So if you... If you want to burn me at the stake, bring it on. That's what Polycarp said in Smyrna, A.D. 101. All right, uh, any others? Can I go on here? All right, everybody's... Did I sort of answer your question? Now, here's here's where I'm going to go down a little bunny trail. But just to to stick with you a little bit, because each one of these 
has a, a biblical, uh, a whole bunch of biblical references. What are some of the means that God uses to discipline us? Do you understand what I mean by means? You know, you know what means, means to an end? Okay. What are some of the means? Well, first, and, pri- and I somewhat in priority here, is his word. I mean, just like, I remember when my kids, when they, when they were growing up, sometimes all I would have to do is say a word, and they changed. Now, not always, but sometimes. You know what I mean? So, it's like you're, you're in God's word. You're reading God's word. You hear it taught. You hear it preached. You, you think about it, and, and you, you begin to change. You begin to correct your behavior, uh, your habits. I mean, you know, just whatever you want to fill in there. And that's, that's the nature of God's word. If you go to 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, you know, all scripture is inspired. And then he says, profitable. For what? For correction? For training in righteousness? That's how God does it. His word. And that's why it just baffles me. I don't understand it. How you can go into a church and they never read Never preach, never admonish from God's word. I mean, I just, I, I don't understand that. I, I just, it, that just, it baffles me. I, I just, I don't get it. And so that's why, I mean, I've never been associated with a church that does not give the priority to God's word. Because that's how God changes people. It is his revelation to the human race. And so it's, it just becomes the bedrock for training, Correcting, equipping. How paideia, discipline is defined. Number two, God uses people. Matthew 18, uh, Jesus talks about that when he says, you know, you see a brother that is in need, struggles, and you go up to him, put your arm around him, and talk to him. Brother, I see you're struggling with and if he doesn't listen, then you take another brother or two, two or three, and go to him, and you're trying to help, you're trying to reach out. James, at the very end of his epistle, says, you, you who are mature, you help rescue the planeo ones. Planeo, we got our word planet. The ones who are wandering spiritually. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are mature in the Lord. You help correct those. You help correct the spiritual babies. <laughs> and so people, I mean, God, that's why the church is such an important part of God's work. Uh, God's work. Because um, we're going to read a little bit later in this chapter, don't neglect, I'll parrot, don't neglect going to church, as some people do. Don't pretend that it isn't important. <clears throat> Because the church is made up of people who are in the same process you're in. Everybody's in the same process. It's called sanctification. And then thirdly, and here's where it overlaps with what Daniel's question and Rob's question was, the circumstances of our lives, just all of the many, 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 many ways God uses to get our attention, to, to correct us, to get us to focus and deal with the things he wants us to deal with. I mean, it's like, you know, your child. Uh, I mean, I remember, we, and I'm sure you all agree, we have two children, and, and they're, you know, one's 38 and 32, so they're old now, but 
I remember what worked with Jonathan didn't work with Joanna. That's just the way kids, each kid's individual. They're unique. And you, know, you try one thing with your one. Oh, this is great. This is the power. We'll write a book on this. And you get a second child. Didn't work. Has absolutely no impact. What's wrong? That was the way you know, Jonathan was very compliant. He liked to please mom and dad. Joanna's strong, which you could care less about pleasing mom and dad. The one, her mission in life was to find out, are the boundaries still the boundaries? And if they're not, then I'm moving them. It was Joanna, just the way she was. And if Jesus Christ had not gotten a hold of our daughter, she'd have been in jail. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. She'd have been a juvenile delinquent. She'd be in jail somewhere. I'm kidding. But it's the difference. And so God deals with each one of us differently. Our Heavenly Father does not use exactly the same method in training and equipping and correcting us. So what he does in my life, he's not going to do in your life necessarily. So this is, this is the background to what the author is trying to teach us in verses 5 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus is our motivator and our model the first four verses of chapter 12. And since Jesus is our model, I want you to understand how the Heavenly Father treats you, deals with you. You're saying when you describe people here, there are people that might be of the world as well as of the church, right? Well, it could be. It could be unbelievers. In the sense that if in fact Let's say you're in your career and you, someone sends you a different direction. And they're not church people. Maybe they just simply say, you're fired. And that person's world is upside down. That's a secular world, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Did you say? Could God, can God use that situation to accomplish his purpose? Of course, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be some righteous person mm-hmm. coming up with wings. Mm-hmm. It could be some secular person. Well, to me, that would overlap. When I focused on people, there are particularly meant what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, what Paul talks about, James talks about. Godly people in the church who are interested in your growth. Circumstances would be all of the things that can happen in our life that can involve or may not involve, but can involve in, in your non-Christian circles of things that can happen. If you do not work for a Christian business or whatever, or a Christian institution or ministry or whatever, um, the circumstances there, uh, your boss firing you or demoting you or any of the multiple things that can happen in life, absolutely, God will use all of those. And that's why it's very broadly there. Very broadly. Because now there's where it overlaps with what Daniel was saying about trials. There's, where the, oh, there's an overlap in those two in terms of what, uh, what God... Because a trial can be a, a, an aspect of discipline that God is using in our lives. So your thought paper is... <laughs> a little early, isn't it? <laughs> well, we're going to go into another topic, so I better say this or I'll forget it. But... You know, this is one of those things that honestly is, as I mentioned right at the beginning, it, it, this issue is not taught a lot. 
it isn't taught a lot in the church. I mean, to help us understand a passage like this, because you read a passage like this, and oh my goodness. But it's, it's a valuable, it's a valuable block of teaching for us. Because it starts with the premise, your heavenly Father loves you. So when he disciplines you, just like your earthly father did, understand what he's doing. Proves he's your, his child, proves that he loves you. He has a goal that you'll be as holy like he is, and you'll be bearing the fruit of righteousness. And so he'll, he'll use lots of methods, lots of means to accomplish that. And that's why I think the first one is really the most important one. Because God's word is, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 and into chapter 4, it, 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 is, it, is, it is the most important thing God uses for, for exhorting and admonishing and correcting and training in righteousness. Oh, wow. So, if you are not in the Word of God, <laughs> then God's going to use some other things to get your attention to deal with some things He wants you to deal with. And it's, it's why, it's how we begin to respond to the Word of God, how we begin to understand its work in our lives. Oh, it's, it's just such a wonderful, freeing, dimension of our of our heavenly father's work he has revealed himself to us now let's look at his what one of my guys in another bible study says the bible is a manufacturer's handbook i don't know if i would call it that but he likes to call it that god's a creator he redeemed us and he has the handbook for us you know i uh, i remember one time i oh i think it was um I forget the name of the program, but Tim the Tool Man thing. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? That program was on years yeah. ago. Tim Taylor, do you remember that? Tim Tool Man? You know what I'm talking about. Well, anyway, Tim, what's his name? Tim Allen? Yeah. Is that okay? Tim Allen. Well, anyway, it was a comedy show. But the one, it just it really struck me. He bought something, and one of his little boys was with him, and he said, Dad, here's the instructions on how to put this together. He says, real men don't need that. That's just a manufacturer's suggestion. <laughs> of course, he didn't get it together. He messed it all up. And I remember thinking of my friend who calls the Bible the, ma the manufacturer's handbook. You know, it isn't God's suggestions. This is the, this is the pattern for living. And so follow it. <laughs> Use it. Read it. And so it's just a neat, uh, that, for some reason that stuck with me. Didn't have any effect on you, so forget it. But anyway. So are there any, any other questions on, on verses 5 through 11? This is a magnificent paragraph on God's discipline, the Heavenly Father's discipline in our lives. It, it's just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my <clears throat> footnotes here um, it goes back to 12.5, the Lord's discipline. Suffering and persecution should be seen as corrective and instructive training for our spiritual development. Well, persecution can be pretty severe. Fall under circumstances. Yeah. But, you know, mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, 
Yeah, you for us, that, you wonder how that's corrective in the sense of corrective and in, in structure. Remember, it, it seems more like punishment. Oh well, but remember, it isn't just correct to train to equip. You, you know, it's all all of those things. So I mean, persecution from the person who's persecuting, they look at that as punishment. But just using the early church, for example, the martyrs of the early church who were being persecuted ruthlessly and relentlessly, um, they, this is almost unbelievable, but you study it, you find it, they saw that as a righteous and glorious thing to do, to die for the Savior. Because they were being perceived whether it was a local Roman official or by the empire itself later on in history, uh, the church, the church is experiencing persecution because they have become a threat to the Rome, to the Roman Empire. And so persecution can be a means to equipping and training. Polycarp, I cited him, Polycarp was a model. The influence of Polycarp, and I know you don't know who he is, but he's just an early martyr, very early. He had been trained by John, uh, the, the disciple. But Polycarp's, Polycarp's death, and what he said, and, and, and everything about his death, because his congregation wrote it down. They wrote down his last words and, and published it. Uh, it. The influence he had was amazing. He, he had an enormous influence in the second century. Because Rome was increasingly becoming more antagonistic to the church. And Polycarp was one of those that they cited as an example. Okay, you're going to burn me at the stake? Bring it on. Because Polycarp looked at that Roman official and said, you're going to burn me with fire, but the moment I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. Amen. But if you don't come to know Jesus right now, you will be burned with fire. It's called hell. Do you have to choose? Now just think about that. But I mean, he's got minutes to live. He's burning the stake. Why mince words? Why try to win friends and influence people like Dale Carnegie? Lay it on the line. You want to burn me? Okay, in seconds, I'm going to be with Jesus. But if you don't put your faith in Jesus, you're going to burn too, but you're going to burn in hell. I mean, that's, you know, that's just laying it on the line. But that kind of influence of of like polygon, a model of what grace under persecution looks like. That was one of the things that was absolutely mesmerizing for the early, the early uh, Roman officials. They couldn't understand the church. They couldn't understand these people. They're willing to die for this? Yeah, because the resurrection is true. It is absolutely true. Jesus is not in the grave. He was resurrected. And we'll die for that truth. And we'll look at you and say, bring it on. If you're going to kill us, we're ready to die because we're going to go to be with Jesus because he's resurrected. So anyway. Isn't there a biblical quote uh, calling for, I don't want to say the name, calling for obedience even unto death? Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, yes. All right, can we move into verse 12? In your notes, uh, if you're following, is I called this the conduct of those who endure. So 
remember now that one of the themes that are in these last verses, and it's really been a theme of the whole book, but to endure, to persevere, to persevere, to hang in there. Don't give up. So the author begins, therefore, based on what's been said in chapter 12 so far, the model and motivator of Jesus, the first four verses, and God, the Heavenly Father's work on our life through discipline. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but may rather be healed. Now, do, do you see what he's doing there? What, what from the ancient world, what, what example is he using in all these words? Drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, make straight your path, straight paths for your feet, so that them not out of joint. But what, what, what's he using? What's he talking about there? What's the example? Your body. Well, yeah, but I mean, what's the event? I'm probably pull, it's like pulling teeth. You know, um, it's like a race. Life is a race, and if you are going to cross the finish line. You can't have drooping hands. You can't have weak knees. You, you have to have your feet going in the right direction. Things cannot be out of joint. In other words, endure the Christian life like you endure a race. Now, my daughter used to run half marathons until she hurt her knee and that kind of blew it. But... Joanna would always, I mean, I just never, do you understand why people do that? That doesn't make sense to me. That just doesn't make sense to me. Let alone a marathon. Oh, my goodness. Uh, No sane person runs a marathon. Maybe some runners in here. I don't know. But anyway, but Joanna would always say the key, and she trained with it. She trained with the person that taught us. But the key is don't start fast. You know, don't don't go off the finish line, you know, like you're running a 100-yard dash. You patient. You have to learn how your body deals with these things. Well, anyway, Paul is saying, look, life, the Christian life, a walk of loving obedience to Jesus Christ is like being in a race. You have to prepare for this. Don't look at this as if it is not, and that's the whole point of sanctification, as if you're passive in this. You just sit back and say, okay, God, make me holy. I'm just going to sit here until I'm patient and loving and you know all that. Well, you'll sit there for years and nothing will happen. <laughs> you'll just put on weight and that's all. And I'm being a little ridiculous here, but the author is saying it here. Look at your spiritual life as a race. And your goal is to finish is to finish well. And so in, it's like in, in a race, your hands and your knees and your feet and your joints have to all be prepared for. Well, okay, what does he mean by this? Look at, look at sanctification, the process of God the Father conforming you into the image of his Son as a lifelong process. 
And it's going to require you to endure, to persevere, to hang in there. It's marked by faith. It's marked by trust in him. And, and, and look at it that way. And so it's, it's, and that's what Paul does this, you know, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, but in some of Paul's writings, like in 1 Corinthians and, and, and Philippians, he talks about his life like a race. And he, he says, I, I buffet my body, he says in, in 1 Corinthians. I, I, I beat my body to prepare it for the contest for the race. Well, he doesn't mean that literally, but he's talking about, I I look at this, this this spiritual life as like a race, and I do what is necessary because I want I want to hear Jesus say to me, "Well done." I mean, it's another way of of thinking about it. So that's all the author means by verse twelve. Yeah, uh, Woody. I would just suggest maybe don't lose sight of the finish line. No. Excellent way to put it. Excellent way to put it. Mm-hmm. Don't lose sight of the finish line. In, you know, everlasting life. That's right. That's right. It, it's all the promises Jesus has made to us. He will keep those. Keep your eyes on the prize. Paul says that. Keep your eyes on the prize. And who's? What's the prize? It's Jesus. Peggy, my my wife, um, um, she has some real physical issues, heart condition, autoimmune disease, and so on. But. The one, the, the one thing, she had a very dear friend of hers who, who went to be with the Lord about a year and a half ago. But they talked constantly on the phone because they were really supporting each other. They, they both had a somewhat debilitating type of, of, of physical situation. And, and they came up with a phrase, patience for the process. And I like that. Patience for the process. In other words, I understand the process. And I understand that God has permitted this in, in you know, their respective lives, very different physical situation, but nonetheless, they, they came together because it was somewhat similar in its effect. It limited what they could do. It, it changed everything about their lives. For, it just it radically changed them. And so, okay, you can either resist it and fight it, or say, okay, Lord, you have greater purposes for this. Eternity will make sense to me. It doesn't make any sense now, but I trust you with this. So patience for the process. Hang in there. Endure. Patience. Because there'll be a day when you will get your brand new body. It'll be a good heart. The digestive system will work well. You know, you'll be you'll no thyroid issues. There are all the things that Peggy wrestles with and has medicine for and all that stuff. You, know, you see what? Okay, patience for the process because it's not going to last like this. We have a very close friend, very dear friend of Peggy's, who uh, was in an automobile accident a couple years ago. A guy who was texting hit her. It's horrible, and it has affected the nerve in uh, from her neck and in, in, into her arm and so on. I mean, it's awful. She is in constant pain. <coughs> constant pain. God bless you. But I guess he's already doing that, isn't he? But anyway, well, he's really blessing you now. But I, I, I say this because that gal and her husband have grown more in their faith and dependence on Jesus Christ 
over the last two years than they had the previous years. Hallelujah. Because then they have not <coughs> rebelled against Jesus. Their faith and trust in him has grown. Do they have down? Yeah, they really have down days, some difficult things. They've got constant battles with the insurance company and it just these. So patience for the process. The author is saying to us, look at your walk with Jesus Christ like a race. Endure. It's a process. And it's not going to end till either Jesus comes back for us or you die and go to be with him. So look at it like a race. So hang in there. Number two. He says in verse 14, this is a difficult one. Strive for peace with everyone. Who wants to do that? I don't want to do that, do you? I don't want to be at peace. I want to be very selective in whom I'm going to be at peace with. And the word there is, is in, in Greek, it's irene. In Hebrew, it's shalom. And the author, most would argue, because he's writing to Jews, he has very much the idea of the Jewish shalom. Strive for shalom with everyone. When Jesus says, blessed, in, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make shalom in human relationships. They're, they're, when they walk into a room, people don't say, oh, no, Jim Ekman's here. Jim Ekman's on this committee. All he does is make trouble. He doesn't, he doesn't in any way seek consensus. I'm making that up because I think it's important to try to build consensus and build harmony in relationships and so on. And that's what he's at here. Don't be the source of conflict. Try to help resolve conflict. Don't, don't be the kind of person that creates tension in relationships. Try to be the kind of person who reduces tension in relationships. That's in back of this shalom idea. Strive for peace. Interpersonal relationships, I, I know maybe you don't agree with me on this. Interpersonal relationships, I think, are some of the most difficult aspects of being a human being. I mean, they, I think they really are. Maybe you don't agree with me. Some of you are shaking your heads. And, okay. Others are a little more righteous and they don't struggle with those things. But interpersonal relationships are just so difficult. People. In uh, there's a musical that we occasionally watch over the Christmas time. Albert Finney. It's Scrooge. It's you know Christmas Carol, but put the music. And early in the in the uh, play or the movie, Albert Finney walks through the streets of London saying, "I hate people. I despise them." And I know I could identify with that. <laughs> o- only at you know only at a very human level because people. People are really difficult. My mentor back in Pennsylvania when I was ordained, I told you this, told me two things. Number one, Jim, don't try to change people. That's God's business. You just be faithful in proclaiming his word. Number two, you're going to find that ministry would be great if it were not for people. <laughs> but since ministry is people, you know, so. But the author is just saying, in running the race and enduring, seek shalom. With people. That's great advice. That's great counsel. Apostle Paul has a lot to say about that. Number three, and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So he's stringing all these things together. Shalom, holiness, grace, with the root of bitterness. That's a tremendous insight. That is a tremendous insight for us. Peace, holiness, grace helps us to deal with bitterness. Bitterness is a very, very difficult issue in people's lives. It's part of that human relationship. Um, bitterness is its like a cancer. Somebody does something against you, somebody hurts you, um, either in an action or something they say or whatever, and you get that in your mind and, and you think about it and it, you roll it over in your mind, you start to develop that bitterness. And that is, that is one of the most, in, in counseling, in dealing with people um, that are in, in, in marriage relationships, in parent-child relationships, um, bitterness, bitterness is there. And if you don't deal with it, it affects everything. It is like a cancer. It like affects so much else in our life. Daniel, do you have your hand up? What is your definition of bitterness? Um, I'm going to give a very non-Websterian definition, but bitterness, I think, is is primarily the unwillingness to forgive. That's the seed of it. Yeah, I mean that bitterness. Bitterness, you're unwilling to forgive, and so with an unwillingness to forgive, I mean, if you look at like uh, go to Ephesians chapter four. 31 and 32, Paul says, put away all bitterness and clamor and wrath and malice, a whole bunch of things. And what does he say then? Put on tenderheartedness, kindness, and forgiveness, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. So a tenderhearted, kind, but forgiving. And Bitterness is just, I will not forgive them. Whether they ask for forgiveness or not, a forgiving spirit is, I only in Jesus Christ can I deal with that. So I will forgive you. <clears throat> it is. It is. It is really important to Jesus. I've heard the phrase... Well, it's like a resentment, you know. That's part of it that grows from that. Mm -hmm. Resentment of the spirit, I've heard, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and actually we get peace by forgiving. We, it has a knot, you know, knot in our stomach when we have the resentments and the bitterness. And the person that we're bitter about or resentful about is sleeping like a baby. Mm -hmm. I, um, I'll be real transparent here. When I retired seven and a half years ago, the man who replaced me, I didn't know him, didn't know anything about him, um, but I watched in, in the next 
three and a half years, I watched him destroy the school. And I, it was nothing I could do about it. And um, it, it was the most, and then when, <laughs> then the board asked me to come in, they showed me the financial, I said, how did you guys let this happen? Well, anyway, that's not important. The only thing I'm saying is, I really developed a bitter spirit. Oh, my goodness. I just, because I had left the school uh, with a strong enrollment, no debt. Um, there were very positive things that we had, we had been able to do in those 10, 15 years. And I just watched, I watched things deteriorate quickly because, you know, leader, a leader can either help or hurt. <laughs> Rarely is a leader neutral. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's tragic. And so I just, re- I struggled with that. And it was something I couldn't do anything about it. And in my heart, I'm telling you, I, ha- I talked to a couple of very dear friends of mine. Just pray for me and help me to deal with this bitter, vengeful spirit. Resentment, your word. And, you know, that's why I used the definition I used, Daniel. I had to get to the point where, from eternity's perspective, at one sense, it doesn't matter. And I have to be able to forgive him. He never asked for my forgiveness. He never talked to me. He didn't particularly want anything to do with me. And so I just had, a, I had, I had to get over that. And I, it took, I would say it took almost two years for me to wake up in the morning and not feel that. But the very first thing I thought about in the morning, very first thing I thought about was him and what he did to the school. How could that happen? And so uh, I just I, I watched just I watched that grow, and I just every day. And so as as I worked through it with some prayer support of other very dear friends of mine, and so on, it took about two years for me to get over that. It really did. That's why if you don't get over it, <laughs> then it, it just affects everything else. You know these these horrible mass killings that we're having. You know, Sunday had two of them. It was awful. But you you look you look at some of those those individuals. You know that radical guy who drove from Dallas to El Paso to kill as many Hispanics as he possibly could. That's horrible. But you look at the root of that is a bitterness and hatred. It, wherever that, however that starts and however that works in on a young man's life. But it's horrible, and it destroys, and it destroys people, it destroys marriages, it destroys friendships, and it affects everything you do if you don't deal with it. That's why the author singles it. it, it many become defiled by that. And that word defiled is a really strong word. Defiled. defiled the word there at the end of verse 15. Well, some of you are closing your Bibles and books, so I guess it means I have to stop. So um, we will do that. Tomorrow I want to pick up with verse uh, 16, and we're going to deal with, um, well, I I don't need to tell you what we're going to deal with. We'll start with verse 16. So I hope this was helpful, what I did here with the discipline stuff. Plus we're kind of in the middle of the character traits of people who endure, but we'll keep working on that for next week. Getting near the end. So it's a, it's a, I hope this has been a rich study for you in the book of Hebrews. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you very much for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to pay the price for our sin, to die 
uh, death where he accepted our punishment. And in resurrection, he had victory over death, the enemy, the mortal enemy of rebellious humanity. We praise you for Jesus. Thank you for Lord Jesus being willing to come. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us, guiding us, and teaching us, correcting us, loving us. We thank you, too, that uh, we can experience, Heavenly Father, your discipline, which is a a corrective, loving uh, training and equipping us as you help us to deal with things in our life that are holding us back, not allowing us to be all you want us to be. And you, you just train us in that. You help us to become more and more holy, more and more bearing the fruits of righteousness, which we read as one of the, the goals of discipline. Lord, help us to see our, our lives like a, like a race. It is. And to endure, as Woody said, to keep our eyes on the prize. Not the circumstances, but the prize. Help us to be men who are not only men of faith, but men of peace, who seek shalom in human relationships. And if these men are like me, there are things that have been in their lives where there has been bitterness. Lord, we have to deal with that. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes focus. It takes the ability and capacity to forgive those who have hurt us. And that's just so important to be able to do this. Thank you so much for giving me victory over that in my life these last couple of years. And thank you most of all for just the model of Jesus. We read about it at the beginning of chapter 12. He is the model and motivator and perfecter of our faith. As we said earlier, may we be men of faith who represent you well. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. 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 See you next week.